In this episode of Boss Files, Carlos Ghosn, the global auto executive, the man behind Nissan, Renault, and most recently, Mitsubishi. Ghosn is known for his turnaround of Nissan and Renault, earning him the nickname, Lacoste Killer. But now, after 15 years, he's stepping down as CEO of Nissan. So how did he make the decision, and why now, and what will he do next? Gone will continue to lead the auto alliance as the industry moves closer and closer to autonomous vehicles. Also, of course, we got his candid take on being a CEO in the era of President Trump. Carlos Gone, it's so nice to have you here. Thank you. I haven't sat down with you for a few years. A lot has changed in your life. You've decided recently to step away from the CEO role after turning around Nissan and Renault. You'll now be chairman of the alliance between Nissan, Renault, and Mitsubishi. Why'd you make this decision now? Well, it's, uh, you know, uh, I added a new responsibility with the introduction of Mitsubishi uh, joining the alliance. Uh, as chairman of the board, I'm going to dedicate uh, time to support the management team, particularly the CEO. So I think it was time to release some other responsibilities. So I decided that Nissan was mature now for a new CEO. Uh, somebody I know very well that I've been promoted for the last 17 years. Uh, and so I feel very, yeah. very good about this move for the moment. And you were clear in telling me this is not you slacking. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I continue to be chairman and CEO of Renault. I will be chairman of the board of Nissan and chairman of the board of Mitsubishi. I have my hands, <laughs> hands full. full. Exactly. Hands full. All right. So these three entities combined, I read that you guys now produce nearly 10 million cars a year. The way that the Harvard Business Review puts it, you, quote, essentially saved first Renault, then Nissan. You have been portrayed, uh, unlike most CEOs, as a superhero in Japanese comic books. Tell me about the turnaround as you look back on it now. I think that uh, the turnaround of Nissan and the revival of Nissan that happened between 1999 and 2001 and continued after this because you need to judge a turnaround on a very long period. You cannot judge it after two, three years. Just to make sure that there is no uh, collapse, sure. that, that, that you don't have a kind of decline uh, after that. You know, after 16 years, we can say Nissan has really revived because the company has been growing a lot, have been very profitable, been very solid. The, 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 the global footprint is uh, much, uh, much more convincing, much more balanced today. So it has been done very well. Now the company particularly has a management team, which is much stronger. So I feel very good. I feel very good about that. Now, Renault transformation is taking place. We are in the midst of it. And the performance of Renault, particularly for the last two years, has been very encouraging. Mm. Uh, very high level of growth, a restablishment of the profitability, and also an expansion, both in terms of geography and in terms of product lineup. Now it's a time for Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi yeah. has a lot of potential. Well, and we're going to dedicate time for that. You're also dealing with Mitsubishi in the middle of an emissions scandal. How are you planning to tackle that? Well, you know, when, when you revive a company, when you turn it around, you have many things to do. You have operationally to try to reestablish, uh, you know, competitiveness, but also you have to make sure that there is a good governance, that there are a lot of watchdogs inside the company yeah. to avoid things like this to happen. So we're going to make a lot of transformation. Well, sometimes you got to clean house, which is what you did when you came in at, at Nissan. Um, you, you came in, you cleaned house, you cut some of these longstanding business relationships that you think didn't make sense. You oversaw 21,000 layoffs. You halved the number of suppliers, earning you the nickname Lacoste Killer. 
Um, what's your biggest takeaway as you look back at like at how hard it has to be uh, to turn something around? You know, CEOs have to make the hardest of decisions, including those personnel layoff decisions. Yeah, because you know when you when you are, you have a company in trouble, your first thing, which is the most important, is to make a good diagnosis about what is the situation. And company may be in trouble, but for different reasons. So first, you have to identify the reasons for which they are in trouble. And usually, these reasons are well identified inside the company, except that nobody acted on them or people delayed the decision. Because often, there are tough decisions, difficult decisions to be made. So somebody has to come and make this decision that everybody considers as absolutely indispensable. In the case of Mitsubishi, the case of Mitsubishi is very different from the case of Nissan. So obviously, you're going to be implemented the same solutions when the cases are very mm -hmm, different. Mm -hmm. But now what is very important that uh, the alliance between Renault and Nissan is very strong and establish a lot of best practices. So the recovery of Mitsubishi is going to be much faster because it's going to be able to be lever leveraging the knowledge that had been developed in Renault-Nissan, even though the case of Mitsubishi is different. Is there a chance, obviously, Mitsubishi is in the middle, as I mentioned, of this emission scandal. You're going to obviously you know, deal with that probe and regulators. Is there a chance you could take over a CEO? Does Mitsubishi need that leadership? I don't think so. I trust uh, totally the CEO, the okay. present CEO of Mitsubishi, that I confirm in his job and I ask him to stay uh, because most of the Mitsubishi top managers have resigned after the scandal, which is normal mm -hmm. after a situation like this. But I've decided because I wanted to maintain the personality of Mitsubishi. I wanted to maintain the autonomy of Mitsubishi because it's part what in what I believe. I don't want Mitsubishi to become a subsidiary of Nissan. I want Mitsubishi to continue as a company by itself. Before we get into the politics of being a CEO in the era of Trump mm. and, and the era of you know what happens to free trade and globalization, mm. I want to hear a little bit, bit about you, the man, mm. because you're Lebanese, you were born in Brazil, you were educated in France, mm. you don't sleep very much, mm. you run, run, run. Mm. How did this journey uh, start for you? Look, it, it, it has been a fascinating journey. First, I love the product, I love this industry. That's why I mean, it's not a surprise that I um, really feel very good about this industry and I'll do whatever it takes in order to make sure I contribute as much as possible. Except that I found myself in a situation where I had to travel between different continents, found myself in a situation running two companies on two different continents, back and forth, different teams, different culture. And in fact, my education and my background helped me to be able to navigate sure. in an environment like Running this. a company in, yeah. in Japan and going to meetings in Japan and yeah. dinners in Japan is very different than dinners in Brazil and, and in, and in, in Paris. France. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's very different. But I like that because at the same time that you're doing something which is unique, you're growing, you're learning mm. uh, a lot because, as you said, management in Japan is different from management in France. And when you are commuting every month between two different worlds, you're, you're learning a lot, you're growing a lot, you're maturing a lot. And so you feel much more at ease in the world in general. You come to the United States or to China or Russia or Brazil, you feel much more comfortable because you've been confronted so much diversity all the time. But there are things that you can say in business meetings in France, mm. right, mm. that you can't say in business meetings in, in Japan without and vice any versa. Doubt. And without any doubt. And, and, uh, so you have to adapt to every, every culture. Yeah. A lot of things are different between the two. The, the two. There are some common things that you need to do, mm -hmm. but the way you do them, the way you say them are different between Japan and France. I want to hear how you see the auto sector going forward. This is undoubtedly... 
I think the most fascinating time, certainly in my lifetime, when it comes to vehicles, more fascinating than the move from you know um, you know the typical diesel and combustion engines to to electric, because we're looking at a world of autonomous vehicles and and driverless cars. I mean, my daughter, who's not even one year old, probably will never drive her own car. Mm. Right? She mm. could at sixteen be driven around by her autonomous vehicle. Mm. As you lead this alliance in that age where you're competing against Apple and Google on this front, what's the future that you envision and who's going to win? Yeah. Well, first, uh, yes, the car is going to change a lot. Uh, and in the next 10 years, it's going to change much more than it changed for the last 50 years. So, yes, a lot of technology could break through are coming our way. And they're going to make uh, the car much more attractive uh, and in a certain way much more indispensable in the future if you consider that it has not been indispensable in the past. I mean, if you consider already it was indispensable in the past, you can imagine what the cars mm. are going to come in the future. And why? You're going to have much more electric uh, cars. You're going to have much more autonomous cars. Autonomous cars include two categories. The car where you are in the car and you decide when you want to drive and when you want to be driven. And also cars without a driver, which is a different category. Plus, it's going to be connected. And connectivity is extremely important okay. because if you have an autonomous car and the car is connected, it means the car uh, is not anymore just a transportation device. It knows it everything. a mobile space for you where you can work, mm -hmm. where you can rest, and you can do a lot of things. So it's really indispensable. So yes, your daughter is going to be in a completely different world <laughs> because uh, not, she will decide if she wants to drive or not, but she will decide what she wants to do in the car. Mm -hmm. She can work. She can see a movie. She can receive friends. So prepare for a big transformation of the product. So who wins? I mean, you guys, you just partnered with Microsoft on that connectivity side. Yeah. But when it comes to who makes the best mass market driverless autonomous vehicle, yeah. who wins? Do Too you guys traditionally... Really? Yeah. Too Do early to say. Do automakers win? Does Google win? Does Apple win? No, too, too early to say. Too early to say. I'm going to tell you why. Because first, we are in the area or era of prototypes. Now, you see a lot of prototypes presented by many. We have a lot of prototypes. Yeah. Autonomous drive, connected cars, etc. But you didn't move yet into mass-marketed uh, autonomous and connected cars. This is where you're going to see exactly who is going to be prevailing to this battle. Because this is not only about technology, it's also about reliability, mm. it's about quality, and also it's about affordability. Because consumers are not, yeah, they are absolutely interested into the transformation, but they want to make sure that they can pay for it. Okay. And it is something which has a lot of value for them. Sure. So, yeah. Okay, so what partnership would freak you out the most as as the head of the alliance between Nissan, Renault, and Mitsubishi? Yeah. Would it be Apple and GM? Would it be Google and Ford? Again, what? again, I can tell you, that means for the moment, we have a lot of statements, we have a lot of strategies. We don't have a lot of products, okay. real concrete products. But I think that anyway, all car makers are going to pair up with tech companies yeah. or software companies, uh, you're going to have a lot of teams being created ar around this. And uh, what you're going to see are the first mass-marketed cars with these technology to allow you to see how much you know, the competitors, how much advanced they are or how much delayed they are versus the pioneer or the leaders. Okay, so, so talking about those teams, what Silicon Valley sweetheart excites you the most now? If you could pair with anyone, who would it be? Well, I think what is uh, very interesting with what the tech company are, are bringing, they are, they are bringing absolutely phenomenal sensors. That mean artificial intelligence, computing devices, 
all these are extremely important for the development mm -hmm. of this func functionality. I, I, I'm adding also, you know, the radars, the cameras, everything that is allowing us to make autonomous car and connected car mm -hmm. uh, possible. And we need to pair up with them because we want to make sure, as we are preparing the car that's going to come five years down the road, we just want to make sure we are always the best and the most reliable technology. You have been on the record, though, saying that there are always going to be things, no matter how good AI gets or computers get, there will always be things that computers cannot know, cannot replace in human instincts. For the moment. Yeah, I'll okay, tell you. So not never. With my knowledge of today, I can <laughs> tell you that in particularly when it comes to driverless cars, there are a lot of situations where today we cannot solve with artificial intelligence. I'm not saying that five or ten years down the road we will not be able to do it, but I'm not going to speculate on that. From what I'm seeing today, you still need a control tower, you know, a, a kind of reference yeah. behind where human intervention is necessary for some very specific cases. Let's talk about electrics. Nissan was first to the market with a, a mass electric vehicle, the LEAF. It is still the electric vehicle, I believe, with the most uh, cars on the road. You've got over, uh, what's the latest number that you guys have on the road? Uh, yeah, I think uh, for the LEAF alone, I think we're talking about more than 250,000 yes. LEAFs already. Uh, yeah. So it's a big number, but it's still behind, four years behind your initial expectation. Sure. Persistently low gas prices lately make it harder, uh, the lack of infrastructure for charging stations. As you look back and the lessons learned from that, what do you take from that going forward as you unveil the next LEAF, the ZOE, et cetera, mm. uh, that are going to get electric cars to really catch on in mass? Yeah. Well, first, uh, you know, the, the, the first thing is that the technology is working. Everybody at the beginning said, oh, electric car is going to be like a golf cart. It's not going to be exciting. It's not going to be popular. Well, this t totally disappeared. People are driving exciting electric cars, and the technology is very safe. We have today more than 400,000 electric cars being driven all over the world between Nissan and Renault, and we know that it's a very reliable technology. This is the first achievement. Second, all car makers now are coming for mass-marketed electric cars. Yeah. In 2008, 2009, we were the only one. Now everybody's coming. Everybody considers it as in indispensable. What's driving electric car is not the cost of energy while driving electric cars are the restrictions on emissions. Yeah, it's, but the EPA is changing now. I mean, you've got a in the guy States, heading the EPA. In, in the, the United US. States. But in China, it's getting tougher. In Europe, it's getting tougher. Okay. In Japan, it's getting tougher. Or we have to develop the technology for the world. So I, I think the fact that you're going to get some relief in the United States doesn't mean we're going to change our strategy. We, we won't. Yeah. Because the world is asking for more restrictive emissions coming from the transportation no, it's sector. A good, it's a good point. And look, I mean, this is the EPA under this president. It could change back under the next president. All right, Carlos Ghosn, let's talk about life as a CEO under mm. in the era of President Trump. The president's America first doctrine certainly complicates things for the alliance that you run between Nissan, Renault and Mitsubishi. When it comes to free trade, how do you see the path forward? I think uh, free trade is going to continue. Uh, I think there are going to be some adjustments made to free trade, um, particularly under the angle of fair trade, because a lot of the agreements have been done, probably signed 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, at a moment where emerging markets were really emerging. Uh, a lot of these emerging markets became powerhouses today. Mm -hmm. So the fact that there are some adjustments taking consideration the reality, the new reality, is not something surprising. So I don't think that what's happening today is something which is a negation of free trade. Not at all. It's an adjustment on free trade 
taking consideration the new reality of the market. I understand that there are lots of discussion that, you know, to rediscuss the trade between the United States and India, the, the, the United States and Japan, United States and Mexico. Well, let's see what's going to be the outcome. But I can bet you that the outcome is going to be more adjustments, taking in consideration the reality of the economy of this country compared to when the agreement was signed, much more than a kind, okay, we're going to close the border or we're going to be putting much more taxes on, on trades. For a very simple reason is free trade benefits everybody. Uh, what people are asking for is fair trade. They co- consider that if you don't retouch this agreement from time to time, the, the fair and free trade that exists mm-hmm. has become unfair for some parties. And that's arguably what won the president this election, especially along the Rust Belt, where a lot of these cars are made. What? You guys produce cars in Mexico, just along with just about ev- everyone else. Yeah. Um, what the president has said about producing cars in Mexico, building plants in Mexico, it has shifted the plans of some of your competitors, like Ford, for example. Has it shifted your plans? Without any doubt, all car makers are listening to what the president of the United States is saying. I mean, this is the second largest market, and all of a sudden, the president is saying, Guys, you have so far relied on NAFTA to make your decision. Hey, wait a minute. This is going to change. So obviously, we are listening. But because does it we mean obviously... you scrap plans no, to build no, no. plants? No, no. I don't think that in, for the moment, we want to know NAFTA is going to be replaced by what. Right. Th- that's the most important thing. When this decision will be made, and we have every you know, reason to think that it will be made fairly soon. You need it to be. Probably, you need yeah, clarity. In 2017, in 2017, after this, a lot of decisions will be made. But I can tell you that absolutely no doubt that all car makers will be listening, watching, and deciding, deciding in, in consequence. I mean, we don't say, okay, we like this rule, we don't like this one. No, we try to adapt to the rules. We adapted to NAFTA. We'll adapt to yeah. whatever follow NAFTA. Uh, so the, this president takes a lot of credit for saving American jobs, from Carrier to Ford to, to Boeing, you name it. Um, some of that has been proven out. Some of it, they were jobs that were already going to be here. Mm. Do you give the president credit for saving American jobs? How do you see the president when it comes to jobs? I think he's attracting the attention to the fact that the U.S. is the number one economy, the second largest car market in the world. And there's going to be scrutiny about how much the U.S. as one of the largest markets in the world is going to be benefiting from the job creation to source and supply the United States. It's okay. That means it's fair. I mean, I, frankly, I can, I'm seeing it in many countries in the world where people say, okay, if you want to operate in our country, uh, you know, we want you to build your engineering here. We want yeah. you to build it's a wave your of plants populism. here. Yeah. So, so w- we will be doing that. I mean, what I want to tell you is that the industry, our industry, is very adaptable. And our industry operates in many, many countries in the world. And we are used to see changes of administration, changes of rules, adaptation of new systems, Mm -hmm. and we just need to know exactly what is the reliable rule on which we can base our operation. So here's a huge one that the president himself is grappling with right now, Mm. a border adjustment tax Mm. and whether or not the United States should have that. Mm. The National Retail Federation, other consumer groups are crying foul. They say, no way, that would mean a 15% hike in prices across the board for American consumers. You could tell in the president's address to Congress that he's not, you know, 
hasn't decided which way to go on this one. How yeah. do you see it? No, I, th I think the, the, the car industry in general, that means because obviously we share all the same opinion, is not very positive toward this transformation. But this has not been decided. It's normal that before making a decision, you have a lot of different ideas, different schools, different proposals which are being debated before a decision is made. What's important for us is at the end of the day, the final decision. You, you, which think, is it, made. you think a border adjustment tax is bad? No, I think it's bad for our, our own uh, industry. So what do you do? What I, I, do you I cannot do say if it's bad for the country. Sure. I can say it's not good for our own industry. So what do you do if it gets enacted? Well, we will adapt. I guess what I'm sure, I should day, clarify you know, my question. What I mean, does that mean that I pay more for my Nissan? Oh, you, uh, on the short term, yes. Yeah. On the short term. But, yeah. but uh, you have to be careful. This is a very competitive industry. <clears throat> so whenever you have a sudden change and that the costs increase, automatically car makers will have a tendency to pass uh, part sure. of the cost to the consumer. But then they compete, which means that this additional cost, little by little, is going to fade away because we're going to try to absorb the cost by doing something else. Let's talk about the future of automakers in Europe right now, where you obviously operate in, in a very big way. I want to get your read on the landscape in Europe right now for automakers. GM is looking to sell uh, its European unit, Opel. By the time this interview airs, it may, it may have already made that sale. Is this a sign that Europe is going to be more and more challenging long-term for automakers? I think uh, Europe has always been very competitive for, for automakers. And uh, in general, you know, the local car manufacturers do much better because they understand their market much better. That means the U.S. car makers have done much better in the U.S. than the other car makers. The European car makers have done much better in Europe than the foreign car makers. But it doesn't mean that the others are going to disappear, but they're going to be adapting to the new situation. The European market is very strong, actually. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly strong. It has been surprisingly strong for the last two years. And the beginning of this year is much better than what everybody is expecting. Why? What do you credit to that? Well, because there is a recovery in Europe. That means yeah. we are still below the level of the market uh, that, that prevailed before the Lehman, the, the Lehman shock. So we're still in a recovery mode. By the way, the U.S. is above the recovery mode. But, but in Europe, we're still into, into this mode. On top of this, consolidation in the industry will continue because all the technology coming our way, electric cars, autonomous cars, connected cars, you know, everybody, and, and the fact that you have a mix change between cars and light trucks, uh, particularly, all of this requires a lot of investments. So that, and car makers who are of a small size uh, they cannot f face all these investments. So they need alliances, they need contract, they need cooperation. So you're going to see more and more consolidation taking place in our industry. Before we move on, I want to get your take because you have a unique perspective as a Lebanese man educated in France, born in Brazil, um, on immigration, I would suspect. Yeah. And the president put forth that travel ban that got held up in the courts, and now we're waiting for uh, what he will do next with the executive order. Could you just weigh in as a business leader um, who has a truly multicultural background on what you think that means for uh, America in general? Does it harm or hurt America and American business? You, you know, b business people in general, uh, are in general, I mean, there are always specific cases, are favorable to uh, a free flow of people and a free flow of goods. This is I mean, this is the basis of our beliefs, particularly when you're talking about large company internationally installed. Now, we don't want that the free tr flow of people or the free flow of goods be perceived as a threat. 
that, that, that's what today is at stake. So the fact that some countries are putting some restriction, not because they don't want any more foreigners in their country, but because they don't want the foreigner to be perceived by part of the population as a threat is very important. Because if we really want globalization to continue, and if you want to have the free flow of people to continue, some things need to reassure part of the population that this free flow is not a threat. On the contrary, it is something which is well-managed, well-organized, well-planified, uh, well can be a wealth for the, for the country. I mean, the U.S. has been an immigration country for, for a, a lot of reasons. Every single person on earth can hope maybe one day that he can become American if he, if he wants to. And this has been a strength of the country. Now, this doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be planified, it doesn't need to right. be organized, it doesn't need to continue to become a source of hope and a source of wealth and not a source of threats. For example, the head of Ford, yeah. uh, Mark Fields, came on, you know, with me on CNN and said, look, we, we support a lot of the president's policies on taxes, et cetera. We don't support this initial travel ban. It sounds mm -hmm. like you're in the same camp. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, Mark Fields is an American citizen. He lives in the United States and he's participating to the policy, which is normal. I'm not. I am a foreign citizen operating in the United States. So in a certain way, I have to be much more, in a certain way, respective of whatever yeah, your rules. your employees work in the U.S. People that, who work that, for you yeah. work in the U.S. But for the moment, I'm not seeing any limitation for the fact that I'm transferring people from Japan to the United States, from Europe to the United States, or from the United States to the other country. I don't see this as a limitation. For the moment, I'm not seeing it. And I hope there will be no limitation yeah, But those for aren't the countries that are included. I guess before we move on, I'm just saying, do you see it as, um, is it a policy that concerned you, the first travel ban? Look, every policy that would eliminate extreme positions in order to maintain for the essential to continue is a welcome policy. In a certain way, I don't want to see situation where uh, not acting on uh, disciplining and organizing free flow of people becomes a handicap to the free mm -hmm. flow of people. That's my position. All right, let's talk about Brexit. Yeah. How much of a risk do you see Brexit to the European auto industry um, and, and also whatever will come of the upcoming elections, particularly in France. What is this? I mean, it's a very confusing environment to be operating in. Yeah, well, I think, I think the Brexit is more of a risk for the UK, not so much for Europe. Uh, why? Because many industries have invested in the UK European plans. So in the case of Nissan, uh, that means we have major investments in, in, in the UK, but we made it clear to the government of the UK that these are European investments based in the UK. Mm -hmm. So obviously because of this, while we are watching very carefully what means Brexit, but for the moment we don't know what is Brexit. We, we don't know. We don't know how is it going to translate in terms of tariffs, free flow of people, free flow of goods. We don't know. So we are careful. We are obviously lobbying and explaining our positions. And whatever decision will come out of Brexit will have consequences, positive or negative, in terms of investments mm -hmm. in the UK. So this is very clear. We continue to invest in the UK because we really have no reason to doubt the fact that the UK government is extremely motivated into maintaining uh, a good investment flow into the UK. So they're going to take in consideration our preoccupations. Uh, but we have to see, watch yeah. and see what will come. For the moment, Brexit is very vague. 
we don't know exactly you know, what are the measures. It just came to mind, you're dealing with these global businesses in perhaps the most, the world of so many unknowns right now, from yeah. Brexit to the election in France to the what's going to happen to free trade. I mean, it's quite a time yeah. to be a business leader. You said something that struck me in a past interview, talking about being a truly global CEO. You talked about um, what it was like to run a business in the U.S. Here's what you said. In the U.S., you have to perform, or that's it. There's more of a focus on short-term financial results. You are worth as much as your last quarter, your last year. It's transactional. You deliver. You get paid. If you're looking for recognition, buy yourself a dog. Yeah, I don't change. I absolutely don't change my statement, and it's a reality. I mean, but but I think this culture that prevails in the United States is really influencing many other countries where you have, at the same time, even in Asia, where people used to look much more on long-term results and not be very attentive to short-term results, they are switching. There is now a much better balance between short-term performance and long-term mm -hmm. delivery. Diversity, something I care deeply about um, and something that we cover a lot. Diversity in the workforce. 13 years ago, I read that, that back in 2004, you created a diversity development office. That was a long time before it was sort of in the cool thing to do for companies to do, I suppose. Mm. And that office directly reported to you. Yes. You said at that time that it was not a social decision, mm. right? It wasn't just sort of like, yeah, this is the right thing to do. It was a business decision. Yes. Why? Oh, because, because it's a reality. That means the, the, the more diverse is your leadership, the more diverse... When I'm talking about leadership, not only the top level of the company, but leadership in engineering, leadership in product planning, leadership in design, the more you're going to be able to catch what is needed and what is w without being expressed clearly by the consumers. You know, when we design cars, we design them for China, for the United States, for Europe, etc. If you have only Japanese uh, people uh, doing that, uh, we're going to miss a lot of targets. Mm -hmm. We're not going to understand a lot of trends. Uh, and I'm very proud of the fact that Nissan, for example, has a very diverse leadership team. When I talk about diversity, I'm not talking only about male-female. I'm talking also about young, older, yeah. different culture, different citizenship, uh, etc. And we have 50% of our 200 top guys who are non-Japanese. And the 50% are of 14 or 15 different citizenship, uh, citizenship. And this is extremely important because they have different way of looking at what's happening sure. in the world. And it's allow us to make a much better decision. But now you say something, you say top guys. And yeah. to a large extent, you're right, because 10% of management positions at, in Japan at Nissan are held by women, 10%. Yeah. It's better yeah. than zero, but it's nowhere near, um, nowhere near where I'm assuming you'd like it to be. Every study has showed that companies perform better financially when more women are in leadership positions and on the board. Um, no when doubt, are, no when, doubt do, about when it. do you think corporate America, global companies will yeah. get there? And should there be quotas? Yeah, no, yeah I'm favorable to quotas. I'm are. Yeah, I'm favorable to quotas. And by the way, if we are at 10% of female managers in Japan versus 2.5% for corporate Japan, it's because I put quotas. I put quotas. Mm. But I put quotas, but at the same time, the quotas were not only corporate quotas. That means succession planning has quotas. Hiring has quotas. That means at all the levels, we were in a certain way forcing the company to make the efforts to develop diversity because it's too easy to find a lot of reasons for which you cannot reach this or that. But if you put it at, this, at different levels of the company, you get results. Obviously, after a certain level, when, when we will have 35% or 40% of our managers being female, 
quota will not be needed anymore because then you're going to have a natural flow of things happening and people will abandon these paradigms of you cannot put a woman in a position like this, you cannot put a foreigner in a position like this, you cannot put a young person in a position like this. But for the moment, at the beginning, to really jumpstart the effort, quota are indispensable. Has there been in your, your you know, 15 plus tenure of being CEO, have you taken on females under you that you have tried to groom? Do you believe that oh, yeah. it's incumbent on leaders to do that? Oh yeah, that means I had a, what we call the CEO office, uh, on which you usually um, have uh, high potential people. And uh, yeah, I systematically selected uh, female high potential people because it was needed, yeah. because it was needed to give them a boost in their career and give them much more exposure. And I've asked many people to do the same thing in order, again, uh, to prepare, uh, you know, because when you're talking about diversity, not only to have to persuade the people who make the decision that diversity is good, mm -hmm. but you need to give confidence to the people who are, will be benefiting from diversity sure. that they can do sure. the job. So it's a two-way street. I mean, you need to make efforts on two levels. Renault is being investigated by French regulators over suspected what the regulators call cheating on uh, emissions tests with diesel motors. Renault has said consistently that you believe you're in full compliance. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything more you can tell us? Any more update on that? No, I, I continue to, to say there is absolutely nothing fall into what Renault has done, and I repeated it many times, um, and today there is an investigation taking place. We are, con we are really totally transparent into this investigation. I'm very confident about the outcome of the investigation, that nothing is fall into what Renault is doing with its diesel engines. On leadership, you recently wrote about handing over the CEO reins. You said, no one's born a good leader. Okay. Mm. So then what makes a good leader? Oh, leadership is, is craftsmanship. You, you learn it. You learn it like you learn, like any craftsman learn, to become a very good, uh, a very good operator. So you need to practice it all the time. You need to pra you're not going to learn it by the books. You know, I was yesterday making a lecture at one of the very famous MBA programs. I say, I'm sorry, but what you're going to read in the books is a waste of time. <laughs> you, you know, what you're going to learn is through your, you know, uh, tough, a situation where you're going to have to manage through them, persuade people who don't want to do something that this is necessary to be done, put motivation where there is where people have lost hope, etc. These are the kind of situations where you learn about leadership and about management. And I, my, my, my encouragement to them is to say, don't move to very prosperous company doing very well. Go to the struggling company. This is where you're going to like learn leadership. Like you did. Yeah? But, but exactly. That means when I went to Nissan, I knew that I was taking a big risk. But I was very attracted, uh, attracted to the mission because I knew that I was going to learn a lot. So, Carlos, going in your, in your 15 years of leading uh, as CEO in the turnarounds, what was your most trying moment? Preparation of the revival plan of Nissan. This was a very tough period. Did you think you might Because you need fail? to make a lot of decisions. No, I had to make a lot of decisions that I knew would be difficult to accept by Japanese society, but it was absolutely needed for the revival of the company. And I had made to all the call, these calls in a very short period of time mm -hmm. and with a very little knowledge about Japan. This was the most difficult period. And you said to wrap up, you can't be CEO if you're not able to sleep anywhere, anytime. That, that's for sure. <laughs> I, I confirm it. Carlos Cohen, nice to have you on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Boss Files. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Poppy Harlow CNN.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.